Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fucking ears, what the fuckadelics, what the fuck tuckians? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. I'm in a large hotel room, not a fancy hotel room. I guess it's fancy for a, uh, a hotel that one goes to on the road. It is a Holiday Inn Express. They are not paying for that plug. I'm just trying to give those people that do the traveling a sense of where I'm at. So it's a large room with a big bed, and there's a little kitchen operation here with a microwave and a fridge and an ugly sink. There's a couple of chairs over there, and I don't know what's gone on over there. We, we've discussed that, but if I sit here and I'm left to my own devices and I picture the possibilities of what could happen in two sort of uh, lounge chairs in a hotel suite outside of Rochester, New York, sky's the limit. Anywhere from a nice business meeting to a three-day crank bender and all that entails today on the show we have uh, ron perlman you might know him from uh the uh the the anarchy show that thing and uh you know you might have seen ron on my show that was fun it was great working with him or you might have be watching his original amazon series hand of god uh season one's up and season two's coming he also has a book out sons of anarchy sorry i you know i i don't do that on purpose I'm just, I'm, I'm old manning. I'm starting to old man a bit. You know, the thing with the thing, it's my father who's in town, by the way. He's right down the hall in Rochester. What, what is that about? Good question. Maybe you're asking, why isn't he on the show? Why aren't you talking to him right now? I don't know that that would be great for everybody. I don't know that he's really a on the mic personality. I don't know if that's necessary, but I will tell you this. He's down the hall and I can feel the vortex from here. He's literally five rooms down in a similar room. I know what's going on in the chair in that room. Uh, probably a bit of sad reflection. But anyways, getting back to Ron Perlman. Uh, yeah, he's got a book out called uh, Easy Street, The Hard Way. That's, uh, that's out in paperback. So I'll talk to Ron in a little bit. But let me get you up to speed with what's happening with me, if that's okay. Uh, those of you who are checking out, good riddance. Good riddance to you. But I've got things to talk about, and you're missing out. Uh, the tour. I'm doing two shows at the Wilbur Theater in Boston, Massachusetts, September 24th. And then I will be at Campbell Hall at UCSB in Santa Barbara, October 21st. I'm doing a big show at Largo, October 22nd. And I'm doing a 
a uh, club show at the Ice House, October 23rd. And of course, there are a few tickets left for Carnegie Hall, November 4th in New York City. And I mean that there are a few tickets left. I would get those tickets. They are going. It is happening. So those are that's that update. Uh, in terms of what's going on with me personally, I've not started uh, shooting the new show on Netflix. I've not started shooting Glow. I am now in Rochester, New York. I was talking about before uh, last Thursday, my my uh, significant other, my partner, my uh, lady friend, my uh, my who? Oh, someone came up with a good one. Uh, how about my lover, my my lover's show, Sarah Kane's uh, art show at Gal- Gallery Lalong in New York City went beautifully. It was a great event, man. Thursday night, real art opening, Chelsea style in New York. There's a lot of other openings on the street. Every A lot of people came out. I want to thank the fans who came out, fans of mine who had never met me or seen art or that art. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of my fans are creatives, and I don't like that word. How about artists? Let's go with artists. A lot of people who came out to the show that heard about it on my show uh, were painters who paint to me talking and then came to see my... Uh, my partner's paintings <laughs> at at Gallery Lalong. But I'll tell you, man, as somebody who grew up with a mother who painted as a hobby, she painted, but she meant business. She went to graduate school and didn't finish, but but she she's painting again. I was brought up to like art. I was brought up around art. I was brought up to appreciate art. And I thought of myself as an artist. I did some very cutting edge uh, photographic essays, sophomore year of high school, very provocative, probably way ahead of their time. Uh, I did some some powerful silkscreen work, uh, maybe junior year in graphics class. Uh, I also made some business cards for a band. I did uh, never did any painting, mostly photography, but uh, I did some combined media stuff that never got the attention it deserves. Uh, senior year of high school and some drawing. I did a very very um, provocative and uh, cutting-edge portrait of John Lennon from the 8x10 that came with the White Album that won a Best of Show Award in my high school art show. I'm not tooting my own horn here. I'm just, um, I got out. You know, I got out just in time uh, before I ruined my life trying to do that because there are people better at it, and one of them being my girlfriend, Sarah Kane, who does these large abstract paintings. And I started to realize some things about art or whatever we call art, if I could indulge myself. I've always had a tremendous respect for painters, visual artists, poets. I've always had an envy and respect for people that have the courage to put that much of their creativity into singular objects and things. Like a powerful poem, holy fuck. A powerful painting, what? Punch me in the fucking face. Do it. But sometimes I don't always understand what it is I'm looking at or why I'm looking at it or what it represents. And I had sort of a mind-blowing moment looking at uh, Sarah's paintings because they don't happen unless she manifests them. They are not pulled out of the great collective unconscious or the, the strange abstract zone of simplicity beyond things we understand, beyond things that we attach meaning to, beyond ways of speaking. They are 
pulled out of the universe and onto the canvas by a creative spirit that knows when they're done. That is the true gift of a painter. It's like, I'm done. Anyone else looking at it might be like, how do you know when you're done? Because look at it, it's finished, right? But what does it really mean? There's so, especially with abstract stuff, which is trickier for people to get, or some people just prefer not to. But what you are seeing is you are looking into a portal beyond all understanding. And if it is done properly and with balance and with courage, you are seeing something, you know, at once present and modern and primal at the same time. And it's sort of it's sort of mind blowing. It's sort of mind blowing the 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 risk taking that's involved. We de- you sort of take a lot of stuff for granted when you look at a painting. You can easily walk by a painting, even the great masterpieces. And sometimes I get a little cynical. Sometimes I get a little defensive. And sometimes I I, I think there's no hope and that nothing fucking matters. And it's easy for me to go like, what's the point? What's the point of art? What's the point of painting? What's it really doing? How is it moving us forward? It's not that that's not its job. If it could just, you know, blow a couple minds and move through uh, the world that it moved through and get the respect it deserves, it does move the dialogue forward. It does open a portal into the great unknown. It does bring something into the world that did not exist before solely for the fact of a creative expression. And we can't fucking lose that, man. And I also got the opportunity to hang out with one of a, a, a favorite artist of mine that I didn't know Sarah knew. I went to the dinner after the opening and uh, and I hung out with uh, with Fred Tomaselli, who is this amazing artist who I saw for the first time, like back in the 90s. He does these amazing sort of collage like paintings, but he uses like marijuana leaves and he uses hallucinogenic drugs in them and he coats them with a resin and he creates abstract sort of hallucinatory paintings using all sort of elements of painting and collage and actual pills. And I got to hang out with him for an hour. I never thought that would happen. And we, we had some pretty deep talks about uh, nicotine delivery systems and power pop. And that's what you talk about when you got time on your hands and you're doing the big work. What do you got going? Well, he happens to be a nicotine gum guy. I'm a nicotine lozenge guy. He kind of want to make the jump. He wants to make the jump and never try to lozenge. So I gave the guy that uses drugs in his painting half a nicotine lozenge. I think I might have just changed his life. That said, boy, I'm, I'm sort of on a, a bit of a tear that may or may not make sense. I'll finish it up momentarily. So you know what I did that I didn't know I could do because I'm sort of old manning a bit, as I said, is I got HBO Go because I got HBO on Time Warner Cable. Again, these are not paid plugs. This is just my life. And I didn't know I could just get HBO Go. So you know what I've been doing instead of like putting my act together and doing uh, important readings and learning things and expanding my mind is I'm watching The Sopranos from episode one. You know why? Because I fucking miss it. God damn it. Do you remember when the Sopranos were on and like you'd look forward to Sunday because you didn't have HBO Go and there was no other way to watch it and you, you knew that Sunday there'd be a new Sopranos and if there wasn't, it'd be a sad fucking Sunday. And I'm watching them all. It's fucking great sitting in a hotel room watching the Sopranos when you should be doing other stuff. But what's better than the Sopranos? It's so nice to have those people in my head again because they've already infused into my dreams. It's amazing. What an amazing thing. That, that, the Sopranos changed everything. And I don't need to plug The Sopranos. But before I forget, there's also a spectacular exhibit at the New Museum in New York. I guess I'm going to be art guy. I was going to play guy for a while, but now I guess I'm going to be art guy for a second because the New Museum has this, um, 
just all these obsessive collections of creative people that infused all sorts of purpose in their creativity that the what that that what they were doing served a specific purpose in terms of their life and keeping it together awarding off spirits there's almost a mystical element it's a curated exhibition of specific people that did odd you know artistic things and and sort of coveted them in in series or you know in papers or you know in collections of photographs it's pretty fascinating but on the top floor there's a series of paintings by a woman named Hilma Off Klint. It's a Swedish woman, and Sarah is a huge fan of this woman. I, of course, had never heard of her. And these are these mystical abstracts. Apparently, this woman was a realist painter, and she secretly, way ahead of the of the game, like in the early 1900s, was doing these abstracts that were sort of attempts at bringing together a mystical system that her and a few other people were working on putting together a mystical system to explain the great primal forces of the universe in a very simple thing. Cause you break it right down, man. This is the thing is if you move the scrim of garbage aside and just look at the light, you're looking at frequencies, shapes, colors, cohesions through, through just mystical and some still unknown mysterious forces that remain, you know, unexplained by science and only theorized that, that these forces, they propel us and everything we know and don't know through time and through universes and through these portals, as I said before, you tap in and the truth is simple and it makes everything in the moment that you lock into that canvas or in the moment that you lock into that poem or that you lock into that portal that has been you know, offered to you by an artist. It suspends and just you know, devastates every element of our trivial, petty, garbage-filled, distracting, dumb lives. And there you look at the simple truths. Simple truths. In one of those paintings, there's a helix structure. 50 years before DNA was even discovered. Why? Because that woman was tapped in to the abstractions that define those mystical forces that move us through all life, all space, right? That's what you get. Did that just exhaust you? Could you still walk by it and not see that? Absolutely. Is it really that simple? Yeah, if you strip it all away and you just deal with those basics, That said, sometimes it's nice just to plow through a pint of ice cream and a Kit Kat and watch The Sopranos on a computer in a hotel room where probably bad things happened. That's all right. That's okay. You can't spend all your time in the abstract. So right now, let's go to my conversation with the lovely Ron Perlman. This conversation definitely has an arc to it, and we definitely get to something. So this is me and Ron Perlman, as I said, you can uh, watch his uh, show on Amazon, Hand of God, season two is coming soon. And you can get his book, Easy Street the Hard Way, that's out in paperback now. And you can listen to me and Ron Perlman right now. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to 
prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. This is one of these fucking shows, dude, where like, you know, we live in a world now where people tell me like, you got to see this show. And I'm like, what's it on? I don't even know what it's on. When they when they tell me, I don't I know, know what they're talking about. Too, we we've over, we've overloaded it, right? We fucked up a good thing, didn't we? I don't. I had we nothing. Went, to we do went with from it. the golden nothing, age of nothing. television to like, please stop. <laughs> it's I don't even know what it is. It's the golden age of of chaos and clusterfuck. Of it's, like, it's, it's listen. It's employing a lot of people who have no reason, have no right to be employed. Well, I didn't say and that. I, but I'm sure. working with someone. <laughs> but isn't this your show? Isn't this your show? Well, I'd like to think it is, but then again, I, th- I think that of everything I did. When I was on your show, I thought it was my show. It was your show, I made Ron. I made it your was. show it was my your show. show. What is this hand of God business? It's, it's not- Pitch it it's, to it's, me. Pitch it's, it to it's, me. It's, okay. It's not hand to God. It's hand of. Right. Um, it's actually um, unpitchable. Okay. Great. I'm it's, in. Because it's so dense. <laughs> it's so dense. You, would you like to dance? <laughs> <laughs> it's very it's very uh it's very it's very dense it's um it's very complex yeah um yeah, there's no way to describe it i mean i could how how long we got as long as you need you're early okay yeah no i i could i could i'm i'm, I'm an hour early hey, you are you the lead in this show i am i'm number one on the call sheet you're number one on the call sheet but it's a vague it's show like, it's like my version of marin okay yeah except you're not ron but i'm pernell harris pernell harris i am a judge um uh of 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 some consequence yeah uh every street or boulevard in town is named after either my grandfather or my great-grandfather small town i'm that guy san vicente california the okay. fictional town yeah sort of northern california right um two hour drive an hour and a half drive from san fran right and um when you meet me in yeah. the beginning of uh of of uh our little foray I am stark naked in broad daylight in a fountain. So you're dr- a judge with problems in a fountain, yeah. And I'm and I'm speaking in tongues, mm. and I'm taken in, and I, so it turns out I've been missing for three days. And Manic then, episode. And then it turns out that we find out that my son is lying on life support, having shot himself in the head because he had to watch his wife get raped for an hour. And uh, this is the opening episode. We're, we're given to believe that he's. Uh, he's he's in a position where we're being we're being advised to pull the plug. Right. So suddenly, this man. This is the first episode. This is the first episode. This this is like old news. This right. Is old, I'm just I'm just hipping you to this because you know you're, you're setting it up. You you don't own a TV, obviously. I own a TV. I don't have the time, Ron. I don't know where people <clears throat> find the fucking time. I don't listen. I don't even watch my show. Yeah, so. I'm watching my show for the first time. I'm I'm finally with, uh, like I, I'm. Three seasons, I couldn't watch my show for one reason or another. It's good though, isn't it? Well, yeah, I like it. You're I fucking like good, man. Oh, that's sweet of you. You know, I, 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 you caught me on a good season. It, I, this is the fourth one in. I figured it out. 
It was figured. It yeah. was figured, man. I, I, I didn't. I didn't even break a sweat. And and I'm a sweater. I go through boxes of tissues. We had some good set. scenes. We had, we had some good we had scenes. Some nice stuff. You, me, and MC Ganey. MC Ganey acting way out of character. I loved the conceit of who who it was we were. Yeah. Um, sweet. Really sweet. easy to plug into. Uh, very very. You did all my thinking for me. You as the writer, which which pleases me no end. Ah. Uh. And I didn't have to do anything except, uh, you know, as they, as they say, occupy. Yeah. Is that what they say? <laughs> I don't know. I just said it. I, just, I like it. Just, just be? I'm, just had to be I'm, present? I'm throwing shit out. What do I know? So with the, now, like, getting back to I, I appreciate the, you know, talking about my show, but this judge is in trouble. The judge is, for the first time in his life, you know, he's gone from knowing nothing but winning because he's... You know, he's the richest guy in town. Oh, so on a personal level, he takes this hit. He's the most powerful guy in yeah. town. He lives in the big house, shining house on the hill. Mm-hmm. He's got every single motherfucker in town in his in his hip pocket. Yeah. He does a lot of people favors, and he fucks up a lot of people. And Is he a corrupt guy? He has, uh, he has the ability to be. He has a wife. He has a mistress. Okay. So he's living, he's living the American dream. Right. You know, and with, all, with, with all it's like, uh, you know. Yeah. All uh, the um, the uh, the accessories, the fringes, yeah, benefits, and here he is. So it turns out where he was in the three days he was missing before he turns up naked, speaking in tongues, is he 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 just kind of went on a stroll and ended up in this church and got saved oh, and shit. found God. And I felt like I I, I almost felt like I could have been saved two days ago. Really, I'm through it. I'm okay now. But I I realized what I I understood for some reason for the first first time in my life the idea of sin and that and the pain of being flawed and why jesus could work for some people i mean i i, I wasn't looking for jesus but i understood it mm-hmm. i don't even know why I, i'm not even sure what i was thinking about what was there a trigger no but I, I i'm starting i'm trying to figure out how to structure some stand-up <laughs> Oh, well, that's a trigger enough. Anybody who's ever tried to to play, you know, uh, the improv. Right. The comedy store knows that's that's plenty. That's well, trigger plenty. Right. Well, I'm sort of fascinated with the idea of sin as not being like, there was never any, there was never any, the idea of sin was only designed and, and constructed to, to, for people to judge themselves against, not to be sinless, but for people to accept sin. And, and that, you know, that's something that, that happens you just want to try and keep it in check and then when it's not in check you have to you have to look for the relief or the salvation or the the corrective mm-hmm. now are you one of these guys that believe that that all of this stuff that we find in the at the root of of civilization meaning the bible and yeah civil you know and 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 the the notion of of um uh the dogma that comes with organized right. religion and and all of the bells and whistles, that that's an invention so that man could figure out a way to behave properly to forgive himself. I don't know if it was forgive himself, but I think that it, it's probably uh, two tiered. That it was a way for the people that ran the religion to keep people in check, you know, somehow, and also a way to to contain a certain amount of power. I don't think it was ever done in earnest i think that people have to believe in something bigger than themselves to explain the horror of -hmm. day-to-day life and catastrophe i don't know if it was to forgive themselves christianity seems to have something to do with that the jews are not great at that that i 
that I can really see. I'm never going to forgive myself for, for for one for just being alive. For just for whatever happened this morning. Just just for the ride time, over. Every time I go in the refrigerator, right? It's, it's another reason to to, Why? to to. It's another just you know foray into self hatred. Right. Why? And I think well, I'm I'm struggling with some of that right now. And and to get what I was saying about the sin thing is just that. What I think about those things is that it was pretty clear. Like the seven deadlies are pretty specific on how human beings can really get themselves fucked up. So you know that the it's a good list. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yes. Food's in there. These guys were good, man. Right. It was solid. And and just the idea that um that this 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 entity went through all the pain possible for everybody to sort of use as a barometer for their own pain. I got it. I'm not I'm not. I'm not saying I'm, I'm looking for it. I, you know, I'm, I'm. I'm completely happy in my recurring pattern of self-defeating and self-hatred with you know weird spans of manic excitement that I think are actual change. And then I, you know, a month later, I'm like, I guess that was just a good week. Mm-hmm. You? Whew. I mean, you know, it's too much. This You're is right no, 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 no. Just a, got no, out of catering, and yeah, you come over here. No, this is what I was talking about. This had catering with a donut <laughs> in my hand. Are you kidding me? With a couple of teamsters. <laughs> Um, Sorry to repeat the conversation. No, I'm 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 starting to get it. Yeah. No, for me it's like uh, um, people say, Ron, you know, you need to you need to fucking smell the roses. Calm right. calm down. Yeah. You're so you're so on edge. You're so angry. Yeah. You know what is there to be so angry about? And I said, without that anger, I'd be working in Macy's. I know, dude. I don't know what to do about it. How are we going to be happy? You work constantly. I'm. You know, I was like. I'm going to talk to Ron Perlman. Let's take a look at some of the shit he's done. It's like, oh, he's done everything. There's 900 movies. There's 50 fucking TV shows. You work uh, constantly. I'm right now while, while, Are you shooting while, right I'm, now? while I'm talking to you. <laughs> yeah. I have my phone under the table and I'm writing a script. <laughs> Why don't you just take a minute, Ron? Smell the roses. Are you afraid of Fuck silence? That shit. Are you afraid of sitting with the silence, Ron? Uh no not really no i'm i'm really good at 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 at, you know lying on the couch are you oh phenomenal really phenomenal where where do you find the time to do that i find the time i find the time and 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 it's like the uh the workaholic aspect of it has everything is the only the only fucking good thing about getting older yeah is the is the perspective is that right. is that start things you, start to you, mean you, less you, of a you, shit yeah and and also you do start understanding that some of the things that you would have thought were completely unexcusable about yourself and unforgivable about yourself are the very things that make you um who you are that give you the you know your your fingerprint yeah because there's only one of everybody right. and that and that uh, if you were lucky enough to get to the point where you feel I'm fu- I'm I, I'm living the dream because I, I I have gotten that point I truly right. truly have gotten that point I'm I am the happiest motherfucker you've ever met you're grateful for that you take that in oh, uh, like, no no, no. I mean every, every single thing that's happening is is all stuff that I used to dream about yeah and it's all it's all just my reality. It's, it's, it's part of my 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 daily occurrence. Like, and, and but you, you don't belittle that or have any you you, you 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 appreciate it. I love it. Good. I love. That's a good thing. I no, I love it. It's scary because you know I'm wired to like you know uh, feel guilty about shit. Why? And 
Where'd that happen? Let's go back. Well, I wasn't. Let's I go don't back. Know. No, I don't. I don't really think. I didn't want to lie down or anything like that, you know. Uh-huh. Like, and I didn't get analyzed. But um, well, no. But where does that come from? I mean, it's got to come from somewhere. If it drove you for that long, you wrote a book. It's got to be in the book. It's you didn't read the fucking book. What do you want from me? I know you're a busy guy. It's not that I'm busy. I figure like if you're going to tell me a story, the problem with reading books thoroughly when I have a guest is then I lead. The, you know, then I know what the answers are. Well, let me wanna... let me tell you then. So in chapter one, I, I, I like the cover. You look mean and angry, and you're smoking a cigar, mm-hmm. and I'm compelled by it. It's and a great it, cover. It's, it's a, a great, great cover. It's a great cover. And uh, it and was it, a shoot I was doing for the cover of Cigar Aficionado. Yeah. And we 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 borrowed one of the pictures that came out of that shoot because it's me with a cigar in my hand. Obviously, it's for a fucking cigar magazine. <laughs> And we used it as a placeholder for my cover of my book. You don't and smoke them no more, right? I don't smoke them. Because we had I, these conversations on set when I, we were doing my show. No, I gave them up. I had, I had one yesterday. Yeah. No, I, I can smoke them, but I but I, I had to stop because I was using them um, very nefariously. What does that mean? Compo- constantly? N- not in a Bill Clinton kind of way. No, I know, but like you couldn't stop. I was inhaling all day long. Every, every puff. Mm. And, and I was chain smoking. And so- You got it. You got the bug. Oh, I was, I, I could, first thing in the morning. Compulsive guy. First thing in the morning and yeah. the last thing at night was a mm. big pull off the cigar. I got a fucking nicotine lozenge in my mouth now, right mm. now. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, it's but, great. But I'm, I'm clean. I'm sober. I'm, I'm, I, I, I have gone beyond it. I can now actually smoke a cigar in a scene in a movie and not get a Jones. Oh, yeah? To start up again. Do you do anything else? Do you, do you drink or do- uh, Only socially? No. No weed? No weed, no. Not even socially? No. No no pills? No. Wow. I mean, you know, Crestor, 66. Sure. You know. How about how about food? That's my thing. Yeah. That's, that's the one. <laughs> that's my, if there was an AA for food, I'd be in have it. have it. What are you kidding? They have it, right? OA, yeah. I have, like, I have food issues too, dude. Where'd you get yours? Uh, lower middle class, Jewish. Right. Uh, eat something, darling. You're not eating enough. You know, they were always worried about you. Right. You know, about you were you, you weren't eating enough. And it was it was like back in back in the day it was probably like here have a plate of kishki, have some fucking kasha varnishkas. You can't find that I, shit. I anymore. may actually go straight to Nate and Al's from here now that you mentioned. They got to be. That's got to be the only place that has it. Stuffed derma is what they right. It's the I same think thing, Cantor's right? has it, but when I see it, like it's a it's a rare treat and it's it's tasty. Mm-hmm. But like, who's eating it for it to be sitting there? How long has it been sitting there? At fucking Canners. You'd be, su- you'd be surprised. Oh, what? That people I think eat the it? Kishka moves. Do, do you? Yeah. There's I, still I, a few I, guys? I think the good news about Cantor's and Nate Niles is that that shit still so, moves. It's only guys like you, second generation immigrant Jew guys. Who the hell? The, 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 your parents' age, they're can not around my, anymore. Can I tell you my story? I have a house account at Nate Niles. So when I was a young kid, my dad, my biggest, my dad's biggest year was $12,000. That was the biggest year he ever had. And I mean, we were like, you know, we were, we were like... Bernie Sanders in training, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. <laughs> socialist left wing, you know. Yeah. Um, and every once in a while, um, on a Sunday when my dad was feeling flush, yeah. which was very rarely, he would bring home the stuff called kippered salmon. Which yeah, is sure. Salmon. That's not the smoked ones, right? Yeah, That's the fresh it's, fish. It's, it's oh, smoked, the smoked kipper, it's smoked yeah. Right. Salmon. They yeah. call it kippered salmon. They used to have all these great. Uh, uh, what do they call them? Um, appetizing stores in, sure. in New York City, like, uh, like Russ and Daughters. Yeah, Russ yeah. and Daughters, like like Zay Bars. Yeah, and this is where you got that kind of. And stuff. And that's high end shit. 
But he would bring home for a family of four a strip that was basically a quarter of a pound yeah. with eight bagels, yeah. so two, two each. So yeah, really and, and he'd spread the shit out so thinly. With cream it, cheese, right? Well, I liked, yeah, I liked yeah. mine with butter. But, yeah. but, but, but my promise to myself was yeah. if, I ever, if I ever make a living, yeah. the first thing I'm going to do is buy a piece of, of kibbered salmon bigger than a quarter of a pound. And put as much on a fucking bagel as I fucking can mm-hmm. till till I can't get my mouth around. It. Yeah. So cut to I get my first show in in the eighties, Beauty and the Beast. Big St- show. Start making some money for the first time. Start making some money. I call up Nate Nals because I'm here in Hollywood, and I say, uh, "What day do you get your fish delivered? Because it comes from Zaybars, their fish. Does it? Yeah, it hmm. comes from the same place Zaybars comes from. And uh, they say it comes in Thursday. They ship it all the way across country? They ship it. They ship fly it. it in. Yeah, they yeah. fly it in. So I show up around 3.30 on a Thursday. There's nobody in the restaurant. And Al, Al who, of Nate and Al's, who's passed away now for at least 15, 20 years, he's at this cash register. It's between lunch and dinner, so there's nobody in the fucking restaurant. I go in there. I order a pound and a half of kippered salmon. I get some chopped liver. I get some bagels. I get some pickles and stuff like this. And I yeah. said... I said, by the way, um, I would like to open a house account. And from uh, and I'm at the counter, so Al is like 20 feet away at the yeah. cash register. And I hear Al say, no, no, no house accounts. No, we can't do it. We can't do it. No house accounts. Sorry, you look like a perfectly nice fella. I can't. The paperwork is choking me. It's <laughs> killing me. No, no house accounts. Yeah. I said, okay, okay, Al, okay. No problem, I'll pay cash. Yes. Just, look, no offense. You look like a nice fella. Yeah. I said, no, it's, it's good, it's good, Al, it's yeah. good. So anyway, I get about $86 worth of stuff. Yeah. And you take the bill and the bag, and you walk over to the, the counter where Al is sitting, and he, you put, he puts the bill on the spindle, and he takes the $100 bill, and he gives me the change, and I start to walk out, and I'm halfway to my car, and I realize I have two 20s, a 10, a 5, three ones, and some change. Too much change. Uh, on, a, on an $86 bill, and I've given him 100 Yeah. So I walk back in, the money's still in my hand, yeah. and, and I said, Al, what's wrong with this picture? And he looks at the change, and then he pulls my bill off the spindle, he looks at the bill, he looks back at the change, and he goes, Give this guy a house account. It's the first honest Jew I met in 40 years. <laughs> so I still have a house account in there now. Do you go there often? I do. I like that place. No, I mean, I look, I grew up kind of- uh, it's, 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 it's good. Yeah, I'm a little very younger few. than you, but like, it's, like, it's a very specific thing to, to find comfort in that food. You got to have it in your past somewhere. Oh, I, Of I course mean, you do. I mean, you grew, like I'm saying, you grew up in the real shit. Yeah. When I was a kid, there was there was a deli on almost every block. Right, and people would York. eat there. And on every second or third block, there was a really good deli. Now, I mean, they're not there anymore. It's only because the taste for that stuff is so specific. You know, it was it was the culture then. You know, now it's like a special thing, and you got if if your grandparents like if my grandfather hadn't you know driven me into the city from Bayonne so he could pick up tongue at Katz's. Mm-hmm. You know, and built that into my brain, or my grandmother didn't make matzo ball soup and brisket, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know because my generation is the one right after you, and we were the first ones to go, I don't eat that shit. Yeah. But where'd you grow up in New York? Washington Heights. And what is that? Is that Brooklyn? No. It's, Bronx? It's, it's upper Manhattan. It's like it, near the Bronx. It's, it's upstate Manhattan. Oh, almost the Bronx, right? 
Washington no. Heights is so named because it's the highest point in Manhattan. It's where the George Washington Bridge is. Right, okay. And, and George Washington, ergo Washington Heights, yeah. s- s- stood up there and, and watched the Hessians as they, as they made their way up New York. Yeah. And a decisive battle was fought because he was able to watch the march up because he was perched at this highest point. Right. So named Washington Heights. Glorious history where to they where put, you grew Where up. they put the George Washington Bridge, which I think they're renaming the Chris Christie. <laughs> yeah, Aren't they? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so how many kids in your family? Uh, mean uh, siblings and yeah. stuff? I had a brother. Yeah. Passed away uh, very young. He was oh, really? 38 years old. Jazz, when he passed jazz, away? Jazz musician. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. What happened? Mm, struggled a long time with manic depression. Ugh found was found yeah. dead right um not a not a, not a pretty story so you got that in your family the depression i guess so yeah i mean i i mean if you'd read the fucking book you'd understand why it. you gotta say it like that why can't we just tell <laughs> why can't we have a conversation about your life here's why here's why because i admire you god I admire damn it. you too but you know what the only time i read books is when i'm nervous about talking to the person I don't. Oh, that, that's a great thing to say. I appreciate that. That's a very great compliment. But here's why. Here's why it's important. I'm to me. going to read it eventually. I, here's why it's important. I'll tell oh, you why it's important. To me. And, right. And, and, and you know, you want to I'm, come back another day? I'm not a. I mean, does that mean I got to leave now? <laughs> Maybe. What are you going to say? No, I got more shit. I got more. I got a lot of shit. I know you Especially do. Especially because you didn't read the book. Now I got to tell you the whole. Fucking that's exactly thing. the point of a ta- conversation. But the thing of it is, is that uh, like the okay. The reason I'm here. The yeah. reason I'm here is because of a guy named Phil Stutz. Okay. Yeah, the therapist. I love Phil Stutz. How's and he doing? Is he all right? Phil Stutz, he and I worked for years and years and years. I haven't spoken Did to him. Did he fix your brain? He fixed me. I mean, I'm, I'm a graduate. Mm-hmm. You know, um, When I go to him now, mm-hmm. it's usually maybe twice a year, and it's mostly- Tune up. It's, it's mostly, you know, every once in a while, you still go to territory where you really- have never been before and don't know quite how to maneuver your way around it. Really? Within yourself? In the world. Not within myself. But yeah, in applying- How to handle something. In, how to handle. Because the thing that was brilliant about Stutz and 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 um, why you, you, the interview you did with him on the show, which I guess was inspired by- Hank Azaria. A book, a book that he wrote called The Tools. Well, Hank Azaria had brought him up and did an impression of him. And then uh, the woman who was the publisher of my book published Phil's book, sent it to me, and I said, of course. Phil doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, there's no like, so, you know, what happened when your mother did this to you? And, you know, like the conversation you and I were about to have about why I eat the way I do. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that there's a fucking reason. I'm sure that there was you some. You know there's a reason. I'm sure that there's. Why but, do a disservice to you? But you it, know but, there is. No, but, but why? What, what good does it do? I'll tell you why. I, I, you want to know what? to to go back to that moment where you realized that that I, all the other shit you couldn't get in this life, and you were three years old, you could finally get from a, from a piece of white Wonder Bread with mayonnaise on it. Mm-hmm. That what was good. Does that do? That's yeah. a very touching image. I would I would think that'd be a great resource creatively. That moment when you feel that. Mm. You could be right. <laughs> All right, but I'm, I'm going to leave the door open for, for, for you to be partially right on that. Well, I just had an experience yesterday that, that speaks differently to this, you know, that I had a realization yesterday around this, around food. My mother was the opposite. She was a, 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 a not eater. 
She was a anorexic person. Oh. So what I was, I grew up with, you know, I, you know, you're unlovable if you're fat. You know, if you put on weight. You know what I mean? Like, oh. So like I had body image issues from the get-go because my mom was so afraid of fat that she she couldn't handle it in herself and my entire childhood was based on denying me food and I was a chubby kid so like she literally said to me recently I don't think I could love you if you were fat that's in the last decade but what I'm telling you is that I went back yesterday to the yeah, moment that's a giveaway by the way that what? She, that she would say something like that that it's there's a good chance she she just fundamentally can't no, no, I know she said that too. She said that like in passing, sort of like a, like a jokingly at Thanksgiving one. She goes, you know, Mark, when you were a baby, I just didn't know how to love you. And I'm like, holy shit, there's the missing piece. But, but that moment, the moment yesterday where I realized that, that she was incapable of it because she was so insecure in her own self, mm-hmm. it's a powerful moment. Like, and then you kind of, you can let them off the hook. Mm-hmm. You know, cognitive sh- shit's fine. Yeah, you learn how to live your life. But the moment where you can actually let go of some shit or feel the grief or the sadness of mm-hmm. it, that's not nothing. Well, I'll tell you something. You know, I was about to say the, the genius of Stutz yeah. is that um, he actually, uh, the the name of his book, The Tools, yeah. the, the genius of his therapy is that in 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 the 55 minutes of, or 50 minutes that you're, that you're in session with him, yeah. Whatever I ever brought in, in 50 minutes, I was beyond it. And simply because there was no exercise in going backward and, and trying to, to de- deconstruct something and, and that so that you deconstruct it so you can build up on it again, which is why classical therapy usually takes years and years and years. It doesn't work necessarily. Yeah. His thing was, okay, here's, here's, here's your problem. Yeah. Do this, this, and this. Yeah. Close your eyes. Mm-hmm. And he gives you an, an exercise- and then maybe he gives you a second one, maybe even a third one, depending on how how profoundly deep this shit is. Mm-hmm. And you walk out and you go, I, I just, not only did I get past it, I have wiped the slate clean and I'm fucking empowered now. Yeah. And that's that's an amazing conceit until you get to the next one. Right. But if you get to all of the triggers yeah. and you get enough tools to sort of um, redirect your your misinformation, yeah, which is coming from the short circuiting of your inability to come com, cope with something on your own, mm-hmm. and you get a tool that immediately, totally redirects it, sure, and manages it in yeah. a way where something that was suicidal and negative and yeah. dark, yeah, all all of a sudden becomes celebratory and yeah. beautiful, yeah. So he has this thing which which uh, this will tie into everything we're talking about called the shadow, yeah which is one of his tools. And this was the hardest one for me to get to because I have such an aversion to wanting to go back to the original sin. But the shadow is that kid with the the piece of white bread and mayonnaise on it, eating it where he didn't want anybody to see him because it was so, like, everything that you you find at the root of all of your self-loathing is the shadow that's yeah. the shadow got it you and you you know if you if you do this therapy diligently you summon the shadow summoning the shadow took me fucking years because i was so resistant to it but finding that kid finding my little kid that was like so in need of of being said hey you know it's it's good you're good man you got check this out you know 
and it came from okay you identify it and then you and then you treat it as if it's your own child and you're going to give it unconditional love and support to the point where you make it feel beautiful and now you are in control of the kid because you're taking care of it and you're and you're telling it and you're also at peace with the fact that that very thing that used to cause you all this discomfort and and self-loathing and lack of esteem and everything is the very thing that makes you fucking beautiful. Right. That's, you know, that's, that's... Yeah, it's overcoming shame. Yeah. Yeah, no, but, but it still sounds like on some S- level, what? Simple exercise, though. Simple right. exercise. Right. I mean, that I you, just that described you can, it to that, you. You can do it now. Sure, that you can repeat. The, the real trick becomes, if you're used to being, uh, you know, an aggravated, compulsive... You, you know, uh, you know, cycling guy. Like if you, if that's your baseline, mm-hmm. you know, aggravated. Mm-hmm. There's a certain comfort in that. You know, it may not seem comfortable when you're in it, but that's home to you. So when you leave home, you're like, hey, I feel pretty good. Fuck that. Fuck right. that. Right. So that's well, a that's a tricky thing. To well, do. that's a problem. Right. But but that's is that. But I mean, it's different than what you're saying because like what we opened the conversation with was that you. Who am I without the anger? Right. Right? So oh, like, no, I won't give up the anger. Right. I'll never give up the anger. I'll never give up but the righteous indignation. Because okay. I'm, I'm totally convinced that that's where all of my genius comes from. <laughs> <laughs> all of it. But you're also happy, though, so that we got to qualify I'm, yeah, that. Incredibly happy. And the anger, um, which is always right, ready to, ready to pounce. I know, me too. Right, constantly. I mean, right next to me. Right, but so how is that? How is that? How is that? Like you know, you've dealt with your shit. You're good. If the anger is right here, like I could trigger it. I don't know how, but I, what's know. not to be angry about? No, I get look that. at the world we're know, fucking I, living in, man. I mean, I happen to be a news junkie now. I'm having to look at this shit. Yeah, but 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 the world that you're living in is you like to lay on the couch. You're working all the time. People know you. You're no, no, employee. no. My shit's cool. I, you know, my okay, shit. Fine, but that, then I. Okay. I'm talking about. I'm talking about. I'm talking about. I'm talking about. You know, you you, you know, I know, you, I know. You, there, there's this there's this a civic awareness. I, I, okay, the world that right, we're living okay, in, that, you know, yeah. there's this. I, I tend to avoid this, that. This just child, child hunger, and, I know, I know, and people, you know, being profiled, and and you know, and and um, no, I know. So you grew up with a social awareness, like you, I you, think you bring I, up your father. You know, were they, were they Jewish socialists? No, 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 oh. no. My dad was an agnostic. My dad had a but political, uh, uh, an active disdain for religion. Right. What did religion. he do? He was a um, uh, fundamentally a musician. Mm-hmm. He stopped being a musician before I was born because he decided that he needed to be responsible now that he was a dad mm-hmm. and started to go door to door fixing people's televisions, broken televisions, back in the day when people had picture tubes and, yeah. and tubes and shit. So he's an on, uh, on-call TV repair he was, dude. He was an on-call TV re- repair dude. He charged $3. Did he uh, regret a house call? not being a... Musician anymore? He never seemed to. He he. We had a piano in the house. He taught himself how to play trumpet, and we would come home from these these back breaking, arduous days. Yeah, and and then play for oh, yeah. an so hour and a half. He was able piano to enjoy it before dinner. Ah, and com- by the time he sat down at dinner, he was he was like the, the savage beast who had been soothed. Wow! So it, he used uh, his passion to as a meditative, beautiful hobby. He seemed to have an amazing balance. That's great. Amazing balance without the without without any of the 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 self 
um, obsessed bitterness claptrap that yeah. guys of our generation are fucking going through. I mean, I, f- I feel like there was so much less self indulgent indulgence or entitlement with, with those guys that yeah. came up a generation before me. They had to feed the kids. That's a couple of generations yeah. before you. But you know, when you you hear guys like Brokaw talk about the greatest generation, you know, the World War Two guys. Did was your dad in the war? He was in the army. He didn't. He didn't ever. He, he was never in combat. Uh-huh. But he was. He was in the army right. during World War Two. Yeah. And his, you know, his experience was was uh, shaped by being a depression baby, number one. Yep. And uh, somebody who, um, the you know, sacrificing whatever plans you had in order to go serve your country was 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 not even something you thought twice about. Right. Um, and then getting on with it afterwards, not sitting around and indulging in you know, like the horrors that I've seen. And, right, you know, right. Um, I knew a lot of guys uh, who who actually did serve and who um, somehow- Of your generation, you mean, or his? A little slightly older. Like yeah. I got to be very close with Charlie Durning, who was- uh, Oh, a great actor. The most, but he was one of the most decorated- Soldiers in the history of this country who turned into an actor. He Charles Durning was. He landed on Omaha Beach. Really, I he, didn't know. He that. took out. He took out some. He he lost thirty eight guys, his, his greatest friends around him, or something like that. And yeah. He took out a machine gun nest and he carried twelve people to safety and you know on his back and and, uh, and then he turned into this fucking beautiful bright song and dance guy who great actor who 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 spread joy into everybody's lives for decades and decades. And right before, I got to work with him a lot, uh, but I, the last time I worked with him, he would just suddenly sit there in the chair waiting for them to light a shot, and he would just break into tears. And he was trying to finally purge the stuff that he held in mm. for all those years. Yeah. Because if you ever touch, you ever say, yeah, I heard you were on Omaha Beach, he would change the subject. And then right before he died, and I've seen this with other veterans, he he needed to get it all out, mm. and he couldn't stop him from talking the, about it. Oh, really? You couldn't stop him from talking about how, the, how he never slept more than two hours a night, and he, his wife would have to hold him in his arms while he sobbed because of what he saw at Normandy. So they had PTSD, but it wasn't a thing, these World War II guys. I don't understand well, it, it wasn't labeled. It, well, it was a thing. It was a thing, but it was, but somehow was, was I don't, I don't, I'm 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 obsessed with this, Mark. I just have to figure out what it is about these newest, latest wars that we have guys, you know, twenty three a day, almost one an hour, you know, getting getting to the point where they where they whatever it was they Well saw. one of the things that's gone is the that not a second thought about serving your country, that it's a choice. And that it's an occupation, and some of these guys are coming from you know relatively desperate situations. Mm-hmm. The war uh, it does not necessarily have public support anymore, or even have anything to do with you know uh, the integrity of America. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, like a lot of these guys are going in, and it's an ill-defined agenda. Yeah. So, so you know they're not coming home. You know, with the the decorated heroes, with the with the country support, and you know if it wasn't for you guys, we'd all be in trouble, kind of thing. And they're not fighting other guys in uniforms. They're 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 yeah, fighting. Yeah, they they're walking into. They're fighting people that are holding up babies as shields. Oh, that started in Vietnam. That stuff. That yeah. whole tone. Well, that's when it all that's when it all turned real dark. Yeah, 
and that's when war was no longer this this thing that you associated gallantry and nobility and all those other kind of abstract words. But those were the words that were associated with yep. with our efforts to 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 protect our liberties. Well, you must have been uh, of age uh, for Vietnam, no? I was. What happened? I basically um, didn't see any um, logic in our engagement in Vietnam. Right. I, didn't, I didn't see any, 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 anything noble about it. Were you an actor at that point already? No, I was just getting out of college. Uh-huh. And it was the one li- lottery that, I've, I, that I won. Uh-huh. Because the year that I became eligible is when they, they went from a, a straight draft to a lottery draft where they would draw birthday numbers, right. and then if you were in the in the, if you were in the top, say two hundred and fifty, you were fucking going. If you were in the bottom uh, one sixty five or one thirty five, whatever was left of birthdays, you probably weren't going to get called. Yeah, I I got number four. <laughs> I won big, <laughs> and we had a thing. Um, I won't go into great detail, but you know we were hippies. Yeah. We were fucking you know. Tuning in and turning, Where were you in tur- turning on and tuning out. Where were you? Where I were was you? at Lehman College in the Bronx. So everybody's long hair. Everybody, everybody's smoking dope. Everybody's dropping acid. Everybody's listening to you know to uh, the Beatles going to fucking ashrams and yeah. shit. And you know, did you have a tra- good time? Transcendental. I had a great. I was discovering theater, but I was also kind of politically aware, and I was part of the '60s thing where you were you know, active. Yeah, there was there was a there was a kind of a everything seemed to to. Everything seemed to be even even my involvement in theater see was somehow interweaved with activism the times that were a changing yeah you know yeah um that was the theater time. was very expendable very experimental everything what were we doing like Ju- Julian Beck shit well that and- was happening and we were studying it and we were trying to figure out where that can that was, that didn't happen to be my cup of tea it turned out I was more inclined to more classic more traditional type things but i was trying everything and um what were your first uh ventures into theater at that time must have been pretty wild shit no 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 because most of my theater exposure was through school okay so whatever the school was doing i was i was in high school plays college plays got seven thousand dollars worth of parking tickets by going to lehman college in the bronx and then decided to go to grad school in Minnesota because I figured the cops would never look for me there. And I, I really did. What, I was, really, what graduate program? Where? Uh, University of Minnesota. Doing acting? Doing um, MFA, yeah, Masters of Fine Arts uh, for acting. Yeah. Which was ended, that a good program? It was a great program. It was um, Minnesota, Minneapolis-St. Paul is great. a, a Love it. highly cultured yep. region. Even and, then, huh? Very much so. Yeah. Um, the Guthrie Theater was there. The, oh, yeah, uh, I just Wa- did a show there. The Walker Arts Center. Um, you know, people have a lot. They, there's, there's some money in that town. There's a lot of, uh, 3M was there. Um, uh, a lot of- But sophisticated cultural a lot of, people. A lot, of, a lot of corporate headquarters. So there were a lot of wives who had a lot of time on their hands who had money, and they shoved it all into the arts. Mm-hmm. So there was museums, there were galleries. Oh, there, yeah. There were, there were uh, theaters all over the place, community theaters all over the place. So there was no lack of some place to go ply your wares. So when you do the MFA there, you do all of it. You do the Shakespeare, you do the dance, you do the movement, mm-hmm. you do sword fighting, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you do a clown workshop. Mm-hmm. Did you do clown My work? dad used to accuse me of doing anything for a laugh. He said, you'd break a fucking leg to get a laugh, wouldn't you? You were that guy, huh? I was that guy. I, he said, you'd do anything for a laugh. 
tone it down. That's funny because a lot of your roles are, are a little heavier than that. I started off doing stand-up. No. First thing I ever did in show business was stand-up. Where? In the Bronx. For real? For reals. Like, did you do Yo. the improv or? No, I never got that far. I only did other people's shit. Oh. You know, I never evolved to the point where I wrote Where'd my you own do stuff. This? I, I, I basically mostly did George Carlin's act. Uh-huh. Where? Um, started off locally, and then wherever discotheque there was around, we would go, we would audition, and they would say, yeah, you could do a couple of nights here. Really? Yeah. Huh. Just... My last gig was on Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. Oh, yeah. It's where all the Italian restaurants are. Yeah. And um, we got heckled. And Who's we? I had a partner. Spencer Schwartz was my partner. You were doing the comedy team? And Ron Perlman, Spencer Schwartz, uh, on stage, we were Stuart and Perry. Yeah. Uh, because it wasn't cool to be, you know, uh, your name's Schwartz and yeah. Perlman. Right. So anyway, we get heckled, and um, we heckled back, and all of a sudden, you know, about 40 guys. <laughs> <laughs> Made guys. Started, yeah. started for the stage. And we, 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 we that bolted was, last night that we was your found final out there performance? was a back door there was a luckily a cab waiting and yeah. that was my final that was it final your farewell night. to comedy and the only reason i went into legitimate acting is because you know like the old john wayne joke who's doing you know he's apparently doing julius caesar and in in um uh in uh some town in pennsylvania and and uh some woman is snoring in the front row, and he turns to her and he goes, "Hey, lady, I didn't write this shit." <laughs> the uh, yeah. uh, so that's why I went into legit theaters so that I could say, "Hey, you know, if the play bombs, it's not my fault. Some fucking jerk writer wrote this shit." Right. So when you started doing theater in New York, like what what were you doing? I mean, were you doing La Mama and that kind yeah. of? Yeah, you were. Yeah. So I I go I I grew up all all through New York. Uh, go. High school, start acting in high school, act all my way through college, two years of grad school. So there's eight years of, of stage. C finish grad school and then say, okay, you got to go back to New York. You can't keep running away from this. Start, I threw down. You feel like you were running away from it? I thought, I, I, I tried to run away from it as long as I could because every, every professional actor I knew had a horrific life. They were all living on spaghetti and, you know, in cold water flats and, you know, struggling to, to, to pay the bills. But what'd you go to undergrad for? Was it for, what, what'd you think you might no, do? I, I loved. I no, lo I know, but like, did you have a plan B? Or there, like another well, idea? Well, the, the problem was there was never a plan B. So right. eventually- that's not the problem. That, that's what, that's, yeah. yeah. Eventually you gotta, you gotta, you know, make- Figure it out. You know, stand stand and deliver or, you know, move move off. So you moved back to New York? Moved back to New York. Uh, my buddy had a, a boutique in Greenwich Village. Uh, worked for him. He let me go whenever I had a play, whenever I had an audition. What year are we talking, 70s? 73 to 80. Exciting place, New York, at that time, huh? Incredibly exciting place. Was and, it like and, all broken? Um, it was It was very much in transition. Yeah. You know, because the 60s were giving way to something no one quite knew what it was. Turned out it was AIDS. Yeah. <laughs> um, kind of, I mean, I hate And to, also I, bankruptcy. Yeah, it turned out. It this, turned out. It, all, you know, the, all these hippies turned into yuppies, and and you know, the, the, whatever whatever it was, we were fucking, you know, a, you know, re fighting re for revolting against. Yeah. Just absorbed you. Was 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 just a big wank, uh -huh. you know. And uh -huh. I think. So, what kind of theater were you doing in the seventies? I was doing a lot of classics. I really loved. I really loved. I had got very lucky. Um, 
because I met a, a professor at Lehman College yeah. who brought me through from, from Aeschylus to Sam Beckett and everything in between. Yeah. Like the entire history of of of, of theatrical. So you were a full on theater guy. Thea- it, theatrical. It literature. wasn't about movies, really. You wanted no, to be a stage it was, actor, it was, but it was about it was about the literature of theater, the art, the literature. Yeah, not the art. The art came later. The literature of theater. Yeah, like uh, what the Greeks started doing, and then you know everything that that they died. Yeah, only to be replaced by something else. Then they died. But through every phase of history, there has been theatrical literature. Yeah. Um, up until now, there's yeah. hardly anybody writing plays anymore because you can't make a living doing it. I, I mean, just talked to a couple guys. There's some good shit around. This, there's some good shit around. But, but, you know, arguably, we're not living in an age where people like Tennessee Williams, Eugene O'Neill, Samuel Beckett, Gunter Grass, uh, uh, um, William Inge, Edward Albee are all walking the earth at the same time. Right. I, when I was learning my value system, all those guys were not only walking the earth, but they were Harold Pinter. They were, they were what people had to aspire to, had to look up to. Yeah. We don't live in a condition right now that supports that particular kind of. And my theory is, it's not because a, a, a Tennessee William isn't being born every five minutes. It's just that, he, he, you know, his ability to get to the marketplace has been completely stultified. That's true. So he has to go find a way to to, to do something to keep his lights on, and that usually means he's going to be working at FX or Amazon or, and thank God for those places mm-hmm. because right now that's where all the great literature. It was definitely, what I've learned from talking to people that lived through this and yourself included is that it was a much more intimate business and in in the sense of outlets and people who were truly gifted and and full on geniuses that did the work were were celebrated more because because of that intimacy. You know, now the whole thing is broken open. There's a million different outlets. There's there's the issue of 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 corporate occupancy of the arts uh, and very little public support in a lot of ways. And there's just thousands of people doing things and they can do it on their own. But back then, if someone came up through the ranks and all of a sudden there was a play and it had to be reckoned with, it was reckoned with. It was a small community because, because there was an edifice into which it could plug into. Yep. And it was a thriving edifice, you know. But it was also a small, you know, it was like, you know, I I think that the politics of the business and and, and sort of the competition was always there and there was even less opportunity. So the motherfuckers that got through had to be real fucking geniuses. But that's true of any generation. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. However, what is not true of every generation is is what's happening now is that the edifices have all been ripped away including the record industry. Like I have a kid who uh, she recorded her first album of 10 songs that she wrote. And if she had done that literally two years earlier, she'd have been signed. They would have given her $3 million, $1 million to make the album, mm-hmm. another million dollars to um, uh, turn her into a brand name, and a third million dollars to send her out into the world on tour. And by the time all those three things happened, if she was meant to be a star... She was going to be a star, and 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 they had a revenue stream. Yeah, it's all broken open now. There's 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 no edifice. It's become so difficult to sort through 
because there's always been yeah, 55 because, layers of garbage before you get to before you get to Stevie Wonder. Right, but somebody was in charge of sorting through that. Right. Now but, we all just have to do it for you. And there was a place where somebody would be playing something and all of a sudden they'd hear, you know, for once in my life, and they'd yeah. go, holy shit, yeah. get him on the fucking phone. Right. And all of a sudden the world has Stevie Wonder and, right. and not just you and me, because so, we happen to catch him on YouTube, right. but the fucking world has Stevie Wonder, right. and he's filling stadiums all over the world. So, so you're doing the classics, you're in New York. Uh, and I'm still doing the classics. <laughs> yeah. But you had an amazing career, so like, I'm just trying to, like, you know, how did, what were, how did you come to Hollywood? What happened? So you're doing, you're doing theater in New York. What was the break? Because it seems like you were eating a lot of shit for a few years. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I had uh, um, sporadic moments of sublimeness. On um, stage? Throughout my whole young life. Yeah. Sporadic moments of, of sublimeness. Uh, met a guy uh, right after I got out of school named Tom O'Horgan. Yeah. And Tom O'Horgan was known for Hair, Jesus Christ Superstar, Lenny. He yeah. directed all those things. Oh, yeah. I caught, a, I caught him... In, in his waning days, mm -hmm. but we made some noise, and so you know the the play that we did got a huge amount. Which of Which play? It was called the Emperor and the Architect of Assyria, or the Architect and the Emperor of Assyria. It was it was a very very angry expressionistic Spanish play by a guy named Fernando Arabal. Mm -hmm. But we fucking set the town on fire in New York at rave reviews. What year was that? Uh, Seventy six. Oh, that's exciting. And so from that I got um, uh, an equity card. From that I got a fir my first agent and everything like uh -huh. that. And then uh, nothing for three years. <laughs> and uh, I thought you were gonna go. This is it. Yeah. And then uh, 1979, um, I get called in to to do this uh, audition where uh, I'm supposed to try to act like a Neanderthal. And so I cavalierly go, and I, I treat the fucking director because he's French, and he seemed like he seemed like he was wearing he was wearing jeans that had that had that had that were ironed. Yeah, you know. So you, 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 you're you, full do, of the hate. Do you iron your jeans? No. Do you have you have like a crease in the front of your jeans? No, no, no. This motherfucker a, had a, creases those in are the front. Dry clean jeans, my friend. He had he had he was a Frenchman. He had a sweater tied around his. So you shoulders. got you got the right attitude going he, into he, this. He had perfect hair. Uh huh. And he was French, uh -huh. and and he was doing a fucking caveman movie, and uh -huh. I, 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 all I could think of was Victor Mature and Virginia Mayo in in two thousand BC, yeah, where she's wearing you know loincloth, uh, a loincloth, and and I an eye shadow, yeah, you know, and yeah. he and he's he's perfectly shaved, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, with great hair, yeah, and so I cavalierly went through this whole audition process, and the day they flew me to London for the final audition. I find out that this Frenchman had won the Academy Award for Black and White and Color for Best Foreign Film, and that he was a serious motherfucker. Yeah. And on the last audition, I finally got nervous, but I hadn't blown it. I didn't get so nervous that I blew it. They gave me the part. It was uh, called Quest for Fire, my first movie, 20th Century Fox. It's a big movie. Huge budget yeah. for the time, for 1980. Academy Award winning filmmaker. Do the movie. It's got Anthony Burgess who wrote uh, Clockwork, Clockwork Orange. Yeah. He's writing the, the the glossary. It's got um, 
the, the greatest uh, um, anthropologist in the world. He's setting up the world for us. It's it's just teeming with class and and teeming. It's got with, Ray Don Chong. It's got Ray Don Chong. It's it's teeming with integrity. Yeah. It's teeming with. Yeah. It's the most serious look anybody's ever taken at eighty thousand years ago. What that might have looked like. Right. And it's not playing. It's not fucking playing. And um, we do the movie, rave reviews, get a couple of nominations. Nothing yeah. happens for three years. Again. Again. Three years. Three years. Nothing. Nothing. Then that same dude who did Quest for Fire uh, comes back uh, and and hands me uh, this another fucking trippy gem called The Name of the Rose. But Quest for Fire was like, that was real, there was no English in that. No, there was no, there was no. I mean, it was like you were. It was like a silent film. But that's with, hard with acting. Sound, yeah, it was hard. I mean, you had to, like you had to draw from all your resources. No, I'm telling you, it was a sublime. I know artistic endeavor. Yeah, which was received in a beautiful way, but but there wasn't a commercial success. Right. None of the things I were doing were commercial successes, including the thing at La Mama. But the people who I cared about, you know, their opinion, they were going, "Holy shit, this is some trippy shit." Yeah. And you know that was that that was that was plenty for me. Yeah. Then um, three more years, and then he decides he's going to do the name of the rose, which uh, was like for two hundred weeks the number one bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. Umberto Eco, and a lot of people were trying to do the movie. Yeah. And he gives me this role of the Hunchback, which yeah. is almost as colorful as the one in Notre Dame. Right. And it's Sean Connery's in it, and and uh, what was that like working with him? Oh, beautiful, beautiful. I mean, you. You, you you certain you you know you, you have certain expectations of your of your true heroes because yeah. I don't have you don't have that many heroes yeah guys from that generation are the only guys who could ever who could ever um, be in the category of heroes for me anyway yeah you know the Sean Connery he was the end of of all the guys who were larger than life he was the last bastion of that and when you meet a guy like that and he doesn't disappoint that he's a real fucking OG. He's a he's like he doesn't he doesn't suffer fools. He drinks hard. He plays hard. You know he lives hard and he loves to laugh and sit there and have a great time. But when they say action, he is like he's like Michelangelo. You know. So that was thrilling. Yeah, thrilling. Uh, so name of the rose happens. Uh, How that would be received? Very very beautifully by the press. Didn't make a lot of money, but it broke even like most of my shit. And then uh, Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Um, That's how everyone knows you. Yeah. Goes for two and a half years. Primetime CBS. Uh, the show finally ends. The phone literally doesn't ring for three fucking years. Why do you think that is, Ron? I don't know. I just... Is just the nature of the business? I think that... Um, I think that... Um, I mean, I, you know, I think I would be immodest if I even tried to address that or, 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 or answer that. Right. Um, but I think it has something to do with the fact that none of those things were indicative of, of making me saleable. Right. For sure. None of those things were indicative of saying, oh, oh, this is the guy who's going to be doing this for the rest of his life, you know? Because each one of those were kind of one-offs. And also you get cast as not necessarily a heavy, but a heavy presence you have a certain intensity and look to you, but none of them were s- sort of said, "Oh, oh yeah, we give, He'll be the third. He, he'll be the. He'll be the best friend of the lead for the rest of his career. Right. He'll be Zach Galifianakis. Right. You know. He, you know. 
you, you see most people and you go, oh yeah, he's going to be that guy. But did you want that? Well, I thought I did because it, having the phone not ring for three years and, and always being on the verge of selling your house, yeah, you know, or, or pulling your kids out of fucking school, you know, that's not fun. Scary. It's, it's not fun. It's just not fun. Um, so what I really wanted was some sort of seat at the table and some sort of feeling that it, everything wasn't always going to be complete feast or famine. Especially after 50, yeah, like you did a, like 55, 60 episodes of that thing, of Beauty and the Beast. So you, you, you banked a little money. Yeah. Yeah. Just but enough to get into trouble. Right. And just, just enough to buy my first house and then, you know, and then, and then, and then not wait. work for three years. So were you like- After I made my first down payment. And you got yeah. a wife and two kids at that point? Yeah. W- wife and, yeah, the, 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 the second kid got born the year they canceled Beauty and the Beast. Now, but what kind of guy are you when that happens? Do you freak out? Are you on the, I, yelling I, at your I, agent? I call Phil Stutz. That I, was when he started with Stutz. I call, I call my shrink. I say, how do I do this? And there were times where I really didn't have the resources, where I was in total panicsville, where I was like um, getting ready to throw everything overboard. You know, where I was, you know, I was like, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, never did I think about getting out of the business because I. I what are you going to do? Never, n- what am I going to do, first of all? And what am I ever going to do that gives me the thrill that this thing gives me, that, that sort of uh, engages me in, you know, all my cylinders are pumping when I'm doing it. You right. Know, there's nothing that even ca- ever came close to that. But so, you're still doing, you know, parts and movies at that time, right? Yeah, Little yeah, parts yeah. here and there. Things that I would rather not have been in. You know, things that I'm not proud of. Yeah. You know, things that just work. You know, yeah. You know, just just shit work. And then, um, I met Guillermo del Toro, and and uh, I've been steadily working ever since. Yeah, he's he actually was the one that changed my life. For I finally got momentum, and it's it, yeah, it, it has and you credit him exactly, like he's the guy. Credit him exactly. He's the fourth leg of the stool. Uh huh. There were there was uh, Stutz. Yeah. There's the guy in in college, Arzamanian, who taught me how to love literature. Um. There's Jean Jacques Arnaud, who gave me um, Quest for Fire and Name of the Rose oh, okay. and Enemy at the Gates. Yeah. And then there's Del Toro, and you know, th- th- there's like uh, any one of those people in in somebody's life yeah. that is is that much of a game changer for you, where you're tr- completely going in one direction, and all of a sudden the whole direction changes. It changes your whole perception. Any one of them yeah. is is a good thing to have in your in the arsenal of living a life, but to have you know four people who who had that that much of an impact and continue to yeah. Um, uh, well, that, that, that was that was that was when I realized, holy shit, Perlman! You know, you you know whatever whatever little moments of discomfort, um, you are a very very lucky, dude. Yeah. And how did Del the he he directed the uh, he, directed, he directed a little movie called Kronos. Right. It was his first film. Yeah. Nineteen ninety two. Yeah. Three or something, whatever it says there, and that was when. After Beauty and the Beast, that was the first job I did in three years. Yeah, um, but w- w- his coming out party was for real. This was a, like a, f- a filmmaker that that the world was going to stand up and take notice to, and everybody realized from his first movie, this little tiny little weird vampire movie. Yeah, that, that he was he was gonna, he was going to leave behind a body of work, uh-huh. an important body of work. Yeah, and. 
um, not only did we have a great working relationship, but we turned into great pals. And then he did this seven-year um, um, battle with a, a, a studio and a half. Because for five years it was at one studio. And he kept saying Ron Perlman. And they kept saying Nick Cage. He kept saying Ron Perlman. They kept saying The Rock. He kept saying Ron Perlman. It was Hellboy. And it took him seven years, but he finally won me the role and got the picture made. And now no one can see it as anybody else. Yeah, but I mean, the, the, that, that, that was like, I don't know. I, 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 I've never seen anything quite like that before, where somebody could have made his movie 20 times over. Yeah. He could have made his movie 20 times over, but just by going, yeah, all right, I, I, this is a losing battle. I, and I, even I was saying to him, Take it. Dude, you're not gonna you're not gonna get the movie made this way. <laughs> yeah. You know, give me a small part, you know, you know, let me be an FBI agent or something. Yeah. Um but he did that. So that was a game changer, and then Hellboy too, and you know, and then Sons of Anarchy. Everything sort of started one thing started leading into another, which is what I mean by momentum. And you're in your forties. No, I'm in my fifties. At that point. I'm in my fifties. So shipping away, it, doing things you're not proud of, taking whatever you can to stay in the game. Forties was that. Yeah. Fifties was when the momentum started. Life began in a, in Me a, too. In a strange way. Fifties was my was a phenomenal decade. Thank God. And the sixties aren't so bad either so far. Knock on knock I'm knock on board. Well, it's like it's it's amazing because like uh, Sons of Anarchy was huge, got a nice tight following. We're in parking lots shooting my show. People are coming up to you with stuff to sign, dolls, right. lunch boxes. I don't right. know what the fuck it was. Right. People love that show. Yeah. Like you locked into something that even in this media landscape where the edifices are limited, where you know one thing you can find that uh, is especially with a show like that and with a personality like yours and is that a very loyal fucking following hellboy's the same way there's a certain group of people that love that fucking movie that probably see it once a year right right yeah and they love you no 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 the the, the fans are even beauty and the beast the the, the fans are, were, were rabid they were a small number but they were rabid they that's were the like, way it works now and it's probably better for you that you weren't some sort of you know major movie star that had a five year window and then became sort of like a like what was it like to work with Brando at the point you work with him? It was that's that's something you know we're either going to have to do another podcast or you're going to have to read chapters twenty. No, you're going to tell me the story like a fucking Jew. Twenty and twenty one. <laughs> well, Brando was. I mean, I I I don't even know where to begin. I mean, you know. Of, of all the actors who love Brando, yeah. Of all the actors who are obsessed with Brando, of all the actors who, who try to emulate him and 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 figure out covert ways of 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 homaging him without being caught, no one is bigger than me. <laughs> Nobody has more revere for that motherfucker than than me. Yeah. There are there are others that are kind of tied with me. Yeah. But no one has more. So when I heard that he was doing this film and that and that there were and, and that it was tailor made because. It was the island of Dr. Moreau, so everybody in the film had to be wear these transformational makeups, and that was my thing. That was my wheelhouse. I had already done Quest for Fire, transformational makeup, Name of the Rose, transformational. So I was known, and, and Beauty and the Beast. So I was known as this guy who liked to work behind rubber. And, and, with, and had the patience to go through 20 and, hours. Yeah, and, and, uh, and that I dug it. And yeah. then I, there was no complaining. There was like, you know. Yeah. And so I was a shoe-in for this next Marlon Brando movie, which... I never imagined I would ever be. Had you ever met him? I had never met him. Oh, my God. So uh, 
Richard Stanley, uh, there's a documentary called uh, Island of Lost Souls, I think. Right. Um, Richard Stanley was was the genius. He was he was he was kind of a low budget wunderkind yeah. who had directed a couple of really cool, edgy, low budget, stylish movies. Uh-huh. New Line. He went to New Line with his newly formed little notoriety. He was yeah. a kind of a he was a kind of an egghead. Yeah. Very, he, he, he stumbled when he spoke, and he was very but very brilliant guy, yeah. Yeah. but not not a not a battler yeah. like a real intellectual. Yeah. Um, and he's the director. He goes to New Line and uh, he he pitches the the notion of doing Island of Doctor Moreau, yeah. and they say, "Well, this is fascinating. It's time that we do this because vivisection has suddenly now become." Whereas H.G. Wells wrote about this in 1895, right, right. now it's actually cloning is actually on the on the radar. So, yeah. can you get somebody? And he goes to Brando, and Brando says, "I uh, I will I will." He watches his movies and he. He signs on. Hire everybody. Stan Winston for the makeup. They hire me. They hire you know a lot of lot of motherfuckers all yeah. over the place. Go to far north Queensland, uh, Australia to start shooting, and um, on the fourth day they fired Richard Stanley. Why? Uh, because uh, on the fourth day he was four days behind. <laughs> Through a, a series of happenstances that most of which were not his fault, but he right. he got he, he got the rug pulled out from under him by some very crafty, shady motherfuckers. Yeah, who did not appreciate him wielding power, you know, on, yeah. a, on a big thing. Yeah, where he was not ready yet. Right. I was still in L.A. I was meant to go out on the next plane, but right. they said, "Hold on, uh, we may not be doing the movie." Um. Then I heard rumors that they're not going to do the movie unless they can find a director that Brando approves of. Mm-hmm. Then I hear that there's, uh, I'm starting to get emails from, from director friends of mine, like, hey, I got a meeting with Marlon, what should I expect? And I go, I don't know, I never met the motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. But uh, good luck. Yeah. Well, what about this movie? I hear it's a clusterfuck. I said, yeah, I hear it's a clusterfuck too, but I'm- I've got my ticket. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, 22 hours away by plane, so I don't know what the fuck, I mean, it's all just rumor and conjecture yeah. at this point. Um, and then there's this, like, a, like one car would be going up to Mulholland Drive while another one was coming down. To Brando's house? This steady parade of cars of directors going up to pitch their their version. The guy who ends up getting it is John Frankenheimer. He's who, an old-timer? He was an old-timer. He was, uh, he, he, he was exiled from filmmaking. He made very, very big films in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, Manchurian Candidate. Uh, Seven Days in May, The Train, yeah. Birdman of Alcatraz. Oh, that's good. But he was an alcoholic. Right. And he destroyed his career. Yeah. His, and for 12 years, he went into exile. And the way he came out was he started making these very big miniseries that got all these awards. And suddenly, Richard Stanley's out. We're looking for a director. Frankenheimer goes up to Brando's house, and Brando says, maybe it's time, maybe it's time for you to finally get back what you lost, you know? <laughs> And uh, <laughs> yeah. Frankenheimer becomes the director. Frankenheimer right. goes to Australia. Another couple of weeks and he, go by. Brando probably knew him, right? No. Never met Never met. Huh. Another couple of weeks go by, and uh, they say, Pearl, okay, get on the plane, go. Yeah. I show up. Uh, after about two or three days, we have our first welcome Marlin party. Yeah. Because he's supposed to come on the plane. Right. And we had a welcome Marlin party for the next three weeks every night. And he never showed. 
they fi- he finally did show up and uh um I can't imagine what you're doing like what the fuck is everybody is like well, you know it's like he's like the wizard of us I mean yeah. you know he's like he's like it's like the you know the Dalai Lama so part yeah. of you is an actor who's like been around John the block, Lennon. who knows the game, and, and sort of like, uh, what is this bullshit? But the other part of you is like, yeah, I got to meet Marlon Brando. That's I the only reason I'm here. That's the I'm... only reason I'm putting the shit on my face and becoming this fucking, you know, ram with, with uh, like goat with ram's ears. Yeah. You know, that's who I'm playing. Um, so, I could, so I could be there. Yeah. So I could be in his presence, right? So he finally arrives, and uh, let me jump to our first day on the set. We're doing the scene. I'm playing the, this character out of H.G. Wells called the Sayer of the Law. And he would in, intone these incantations because he would be the one, if if one of these animals stepped out of line, they would have a trial, and he would be the one intoning the laws of these animals that, you know, not to, not to slurp, but to sip. Right. That is the law. Yeah. Not to walk on all fours. That is the law. And, and it was this thing that H.G. Wells wrote. So I had to do this at this big trial where Moreau is presiding and I'm, 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 I'm the guy with the staff. Yeah. And I decided to play him blind because I, I, I suddenly, you know, I think I was smoked some peyote and I said, oh, Justice Blind, yeah. yeah. Hey, that'd be cool. Yeah, and they let you. Frankenheimer was and fr- okay with Frankenheimer it. says, let me think about that, Ron. And so he thought about it for a day. He said, okay, I like it. Yeah. Um, and I went to the makeup guys and I said, I want to have those, you know, milky lenses. Yeah, yeah. And they say, well, you, the only way to do that is th- the lenses are actually opaque. You cannot see through them. They'll, they'll make you blind. And I said, that sounds cool. Yeah. It was the biggest fucking stupid bonehead move. <laughs> uh, you know, I couldn't hit a mark for the rest of it. I had, I had to, and I, ha- I hated them putting the lenses in and taking them out. So once they put them in, I would just sit there for like three or four hours through lunch and everything just just so that they wouldn't fuck with my eyes blind and i'm blind i can't see i have to be led everywhere <laughs> and you're wearing horns and i'm i'm trying to do a performance i can't hit a mark i have no idea who i'm you working I'm, with your hero i'm i'm, I'm brando is, is is a foot and a half away from me you can't see him we're on this little platform that you know uh-huh. that that's big enough for his chair yeah. and me yeah and he's like he's got a throne and i'm there with a staff and I'm giving these incantations. So we do the first shot. It takes us about 12 takes. We finally get this big shot. And then we're going to move in for Marlon's close-up. And uh, so Marlon is talking to uh, Frankenheimer. He says, um, um, I, I, first thing I want you to do, John, is I want you to take all these extras and put them in the shade and give them a Coke. <laughs> and, uh, and he says, and, and I don't know who this guy is over here, but get, get rid of him. He, he's talking. He's talking about me now. I've come, I've come eighty five thousand miles, you know, yeah. forty five years to be in this guy's presence. And the first thing he says is, "Get rid of this guy." I don't know who this guy is. Get, get rid of this guy. So <laughs> Frankenheimer says, "Well, we can't get rid of the extras, Marlon, because we need them for their reactions." He says, "It's a close up on me, John. What, what, what do you fucking need? Put them in the shade. They're dying. There's no ozone. We're in Australia." Put him in the shade, buy him a Coke, take it out of my salary, John. Don't be a fucking Nazi. And Frankenheimer says, Marlon, I, I, I protest, I'm not a Nazi. He says, did you ever see a movie called The Young Lions? He goes, oh yes, uh, Edward Dimitrick directed that, uh, you and Montgomery Clift and Dean Martin. He says, well I know Nazis, John, and you're a fucking Nazi. Get rid of the, 
Get rid of the extras and get rid of this fucking guy. I don't know what the fuck he's saying. I don't know what he's doing. He's very distracting. And so I'm starting to like really get nauseous now. I'm, I'm about to throw up in, in my mask, yeah. <laughs> you know, which <laughs> reminds me of the movie The Verdict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you throw up in your mask. Yeah, it's yeah. not a good thing. So um, uh, he says, I'll make you a deal. Uh, I'll get rid of the extras, and but Pearl, Pearlman stays. He goes, who's Pearlman? He goes, this guy is Pearlman. He's playing the sayer of the law. And Marlon, for the first time, I guess, looks... I don't have my lenses in right now, so now I'm watching. I can see all this shit because we're yeah. getting ready. And uh, he looks at me and he goes, well, does he have to say those really dumb lines? And uh, and uh, and Frankenheimer says, well, that's in the script. That's the script you, you agreed to do, Marlon. He, he's, he's the sayer of the law. He says he has to say those lines. And I said... Um, um, H.G. Wells wrote those, sir. And he goes, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> and so he says, look, the extras can go, have a Coke, Perlman stays. He says, all right, but tell Perlman, and he's, <laughs> now he's talking to me through Frankenheimer, to just say it as quietly as he can so maybe I can't even hear it because it really sucks, it's bad. And so uh, oh the, the discussion goes on for so long that the first AD says, okay, we got to go to lunch, right? Right. I walk off the set, I go, and I throw up. I, like I go, Just out of humiliation? Yeah, I, I just go, I, I just, all my life I've been fucking fantasizing about this guy. I would fuck this guy if, if, if you know, if yeah. I had the chance. Yeah. And he hates me. Oh. <laughs> he, he thinks I'm a fucking idiot. He, he thinks I can't act. He thinks I talk too loud. Uh, and 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 I and I'm I'm projectile vomiting through lunch. Really, and I and I have all these, and I I'm really far from Phil Stutz, so I can't call him on the phone and say, Phil, what do you do <laughs> when your hero has just destroyed you and you're about to go play a scene with him one on one? Wow, what a unique situation! And by the end of lunch, I said, you know, um, it would have been nice. It would have been really nice if. Me and Marlon would have hit it off, and we could talk about shit, and you know, streetcar named Desire, and on the waterfront. And mm -hmm. I could tell him about my my ex ex, you know, my my you know, flights of daring do. But it just didn't happen. But here I am. They they've paid me. They've hired me to do a job. I'm a professional actor, and I gotta I gotta do this performance. So fuck him. Fuck that over that fucking overweight. Over the hill, piece of shit. Fuck him. I'm going to destroy him in this scene. That's where the anger works. And that's and that's what I channeled. And I because I, I had to get my self confidence back. Yeah. I had to. I mean, yeah. I was going to go out there with nothing. So we do the scene, and um, and he, but I could feel us uh, doing the scene where I, I have a, a couple of lines, and then he speaks, and, and then you, I have a couple of lines. But you got the contacts in, and and he speak. I got the contacts in, and um. We do it a few times, and by the other, the last, next to the last time we do it, I can feel him on my wavelength. Yeah, like, like uh, we're now acting together. Right, and that must be an acute sensitivity you can't see. So you got, you really got to feel it. But I can, I can, I can feel like because I'm, I'm almost like the chorus in a Greek play. Right, and he has to come in and top it. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And right, right. So there's a kind of a, it's like. The chorus, and so he's got to work off. You he can't yeah. fake it. And 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 he he has now. I can feel him 
realizing that I have taken charge and I'm conducting this fucking yeah, orchestra yeah, yeah, yeah. and if you you're either going to play or you're going to be fucking buried and the beautiful thing about this moment is like who gives a fuck about the movie right 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 oh like, yeah i mean this is like it's, to this day nobody gives a fuck about the movie exactly but what i'm saying is that you're you're you know you've pulled your shit together and you're working with the greatest it ever was and finally you're locked in i love the fact that you can't see all you can do is feel like a real fucking actor that you're locked in with the best actor that ever lived to make a long story short, I'll cut to the I'll cut. So, so that was a big breakthrough, and that scene, which should have taken a day and a half to shoot, because the set was such a clusterfuck and because yeah. Frankenheim was so over his head. Yeah, that scene took five days, and every time we got finished with a shot, I would sit there because I I didn't want to take my lenses. I just sit there and wait, and Brando would go back to his trailer, and every time they got ready for him to come back. He would actually have to like move me because I would, I, I couldn't hear him, I couldn't feel him, and he would have to move me so he could get his overweight body into this chair. <laughs> and for five, I, I like that your respect is diminished enough that we can now, we can refer to him as the fat Brando. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, on day five, on day five, uh, I'm sitting there and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and it's a long relight. So I'm sitting there for about an hour, and I guess uh, they say, "Okay, we're going to go with a picture," and uh, ask Mr. Invite Mr. Brando. And I'm sitting there. I'm sitting there, and I suddenly feel two hands violently grab my shoulders, <laughs> yeah. and I go, ah! and I turn around, and I hear Brando go, "Holy shit! What is that in your eyes?" And I go, "What?" He goes. Are you are you wearing lenses? I go What are you asking me? He goes, Wait a minute, are you are you playing this guy blind? I go, You're kidding, right? I said, We've been doing this fucking scene for five days and it's the first time you realized I'm playing him blind? He goes, Holy fuck, that's fucking brilliant. Oh, we need to start again. <laughs> If I knew you were playing him blind, I would I would have done everything differently. He thought you just were stinky actors. He thought I was I was this big fucking loaf that wouldn't get out of his way when he wanted to get in his fucking chair. He had no idea I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. Oh my god! And he said he said and he also said. And by the way, let me ask you something else. I got here when I got here last week. There was like a, a whole basket of 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 really great Latin Cuban. African jazz. Was that from you? And I went, yeah. And I was wondering whether you got it because I never got, you know, I never, I never got, you know, I never even heard like, hey, that's nice. He goes, dude, I've been, I've been in my fucking trailer dancing my ass off to that stuff. How come you don't come in and hang out and dance with me? <laughs> and I go, well, you know, <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, after five days. You know, he, and he slaps me on the face, like you know, which he loved to do. Yeah, hey, yeah. you beautiful kid. Thanks for the records, and, yeah. and come, come to the trailer, yeah. which I never did. But um, it's a beautiful ending to uh, uh, what, what got off on a rocky footing. You never went. No, I never, I never, I never felt like like I was his equal. I never felt like comfortable enough to just knock on his door and say, "Hey, hey, Marlon, uh, let's hang." Did you do the scene again? We finished the scene, and 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 at the end of the scene, you know, he was, you could tell he was like, "Nice job, kid." 
you know did it play better once he figured out that you were blind no <laughs> it didn't <laughs> nothing changed the movie's horrible i mean the I movie's know, horrible know, know, the movie's just was that wasn't there some weird debacle were you telling me that story that the the original director never left the set well he never left australia he was he was after he got fired he kind of like he kind of stayed there but did he like linger around and become an extra or something? He did. He did. I, I'd I'd prefer not. I'd love the guy so much, and I prefer not to talk about uh, how, how deeply negatively that affected him. But it really hurt him. Did it he really, did he bounce back? Um, he's in the documentary, and it seems as though he's made his peace with it. I was invited to be in the documentary, and I I, I chose not to because I just. There, there, there's no reason to be in it unless you could tell everything that happened, and, and it would have hurt people um, to hear my. Was version. Val Kilmer in that too? Yeah, that was one of the that was one of the last moments of of when you know of because uh, at that point Val was he was a huge deal. He was like the new Brando, right? Yeah. What a great story, though. Yeah. Are you to this day? Do you regret not going to the trailer? Yeah, yeah, huh. yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think it would be different now. I think, I think I could like actually relax around them now. But back then, I was, you know, I just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I just, just, you're Marlon Brando, and I'm, you know, uh, really, yeah. So that's the fight you have. Yeah, is that? Yeah, it's always been a little bit of that when I get around people who are. Who who but, who really take my breath away? But it's funny though, don't you find? Look, I've talked to a lot of guys. I mean, you know, you're 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 a deep guy with an inner life. You're not vapid. You're you're a huge uh, a fan of this stuff. You know, like I you've been in this business long enough to know that you're you're fairly uh, defined as a as a personality for an actor. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't. But you know, I I I've met a lot of actors who are who are uh, uh, they have a shyness. Yeah, you know they have a, a kind of um. There's something about them that where they're there's a place where they they're not all that comfortable, right? And I'm much more comfortable now than I've ever been. Um, Is it a sensitivity in, in, in my own skin? But it took a long time. It took a lot of work. Yeah, it took a lot of uh, of really uncomfortable moments like that. Where where uh, I mean, when he when he decided that you know get, get rid of that guy. Yeah, he's a fucking clown. just hurt you. Oh God, it, it was. You threw up. I threw up. But it's a it's a sensitivity, I guess. I mean, I guess it, like I never thought about it that way because a lot of people say that you know actors a lot of times are, are are a little not necessarily empty, but but they're able to fill up with other emotions and and, and other characters because they're not that complicated. But I guess the other side of that is the sensitivity. That mm. there has to be a vulnerability that that mm. whether you want it there or not is there. Mm. Yeah, right. I, I th yeah. <laughs> what, are you, what are you? Oh, all right. What are you now? You thinking? I'm thinking like, oh shit! Uh, Did you I, what? I've, I've I've just shared my inmost <laughs> darknesses. This is going everywhere. But it, but it's good. I'm happy you did it. And I'm happy you're working so much. Oh, thank you, thank you. And I'm and I'm happy that we had this conversation. Me too. And I, you know, I, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't mean to, uh, to make anything sad. No, 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 I'm not sad. I'm not okay. sad. I'm just... But like when I work with you, you know, uh, when we had that time, like I, I felt the same way, like because I, 
like I felt honored to work with a guy who you know who's a real actor and like to see you work so effortlessly and seamlessly and like I'm sitting there doing it with you and and I'm like I, I like it just felt like we we're just doing just talking and stuff yeah. and, and then you look at the dailies and I'm like holy shit this guy's like he, he lives on screen you know <laughs> like you know because yeah. like when I'm in it I'm like I just feel connected because I don't come from years of acting so I'm like I'm just talking to a guy and then you know I look at it, he's a fully formed character it's all all the craft just lands right well thank you I mean I I actually was I've been you know I mean not to sound like I'm you know, quit quit pro crowing here but uh it was a, it was a great experience work watching you work watching you work on something that that springs so personally out of you and yet you're so you're so comfortable with 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 um sharing with the world because it's it reflects a, a, a huge ability to admit hey I don't I don't I don't have it all all my shit together. <laughs> yeah. And uh but the way you performed it as an on a purely acting level was was wonderful. Oh, thank you, man. Wonderful. That means a lot to me. And um, no, it's, it's, it's a cool thing to watch. So, outside of the book and outside of where, where you know working on the thing, is there something that like? Because I know we had talked once about you, uh, you know, you know just spending a lot of time with Freak, and not something that never happened. But is there something that you really want to do for yourself? So, uh, my conclusion to all of the, the the you know the the stuff that room well, I was ruminating about in trying to figure out why I even deserve to have a story to tell was uh and part of it was um my daughter going to SUNY Purchase which is an acting conservatory school mm -hmm. and so she seemed like she was going to take the mantle and um in visiting her I became Papa Ron and all these kids who were who were in this arts program yeah I'm taking them out for burgers, and where where and I'm, I'm being invited to parties. They're you know they're they're like raves and shit. You yeah, know? yeah. And I'm I'm being invited into the inner circle, and I ended up getting very personally involved with a lot of these kids through their whole four year educational thing. Oh yeah. And I and the more deeply involved I, I became, the more I realized I should I should be able to say something to them when they get out of school that can maybe lighten their load or 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 you know make the distance between point a and point b a little bit more direct uh -huh. or, or something useful something yeah. helpful right and this was um one of the one of the other reasons why i wanted to write the book is because i've been answering a lot of questions from young actors uh -huh. who who like well how, how do you do this and you know what do you and you know I, you know by going to school and learning how to play a scene that doesn't mean i know how to fucking talk to an agent or right what happens when i get a call back or what happens when when i suddenly i'm making a hundred thousand an episode you know how do i manage that i mean it's tricky there's, right. there's a lot of tricky shit in the business that's not just about um what you Acting. studied for right. the, the craft yeah and uh this is how privileged you are to be in this fucking business. Because if you look on the shoulders uh, of whom we're standing, yeah, yeah, you know, starting, you know, in the teens, in yeah. the twenties, yeah. in the thirties, everything that's mind blowing that you can do on screen has already been done. Mm. It's already been done, yeah. and it's been done by the fucking greatest people who ever walked the earth. And if you ever lose sight of that, and you ever, so the book was also like. A, 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 a mind your manners kind of thing yeah and never get never think that you're bigger than anything that's ever come because you're you're fucking tiny yeah compared to some of the people who have huh. who have 
paved the way for us. Yeah. So it's it's partially that, but it's partially like I can't tell everybody um, the edifices that have been built or not built in replacement of the ones that no longer exist. Yeah. Um, are 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 bankrupt and one dimensional and bullshit, and they all they're just nothing but you know the worshiping of false idols, which is which is money. Uh-huh. I can't be that guy unless I can you know. Like, what do you do about it? Yeah. You, you you can't just complain. You have to figure out, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. Right. And so uh, the movie studio is is my particular providing uh, a, a place for myself yeah. and people who might be like-minded of, of me yeah. to ply our, our energies for reasons that aren't just driven by money. By bottom line, by so you started you know, a studio. Yeah, so okay. I have a studio called Wing and a Prayer Pictures, and we've now produced three films. And, Which films? Um, one is called The Runaround, um, which is uh, looking for distribution right now. Another one is uh, called Pottersville with uh, um, the great Michael Shannon. Oh um, uh, yeah, yeah. Which is uh, in post production right now. Oh, another great. one is um, All I See Is You, which is directed by Mark Forrester, which stars Blake Lively. And we have another four or five that are on the five yard line, getting ready to get greenlit. Oh, you're the so you're you you've you've come full circle, and you're doing you're doing. I, I the become Louis. B, work. I become Louis B. Fucking Mayor. Congratulations, you're Mr. Welcome. Mayor. And you know, I'd like to continue working with you, Mr. Marin. Do I'm ready? I'm ready. I'm ready for my close up, Mr. Perlman. I know you are. I know you are. <laughs> it's great talking to you. Back at you, man. That's it. That's the show. I thought it was beautifully human, and I love talking to him. Thank you, Ron. Again, thank you for listening, people. Uh, for my tour dates and my special more later and, and WTF merch, you can go to WTFpod.com, powered by Squarespace. Tap into the abstract primal truth, or just listen to me play a little, uh, let's do some more jazz whip trumpet. I feel like I, not unlike my guitar playing, my... My jazz trumpet, my hotel room trumpet, kind of um, seems to fall back on similar similar riffs. Let me try, let me try. Let's pick it up. Let's let's pick up the swing. I'm having a hard time with my uh, mouthpiece. Boomer lives. <laughs>